I'm Stephanie Hoff for the Midwest Farm Report, catching up with Growth Energy. This is an advocacy organization coined as the Voice for American Biofuel. They continue to focus on matters that have been an issue for years, such as expanding the renewable fuel standard. The organization is also getting involved in some more nuanced issues, such as carbon markets. In-house, Growth Energy has launched a new logo and a new brand, but they continue to do what they always have been doing, expanding America's bioeconomy. Joe Kakish joins us. He's the general counsel at Growth Energy. He tells us about the new look. We pull a lot of value out of the the feedstocks that we're making bioethanol uh, to include other areas such as sustainable aviation fuel, uh, animal feeds, uh, contributing to the sort of green chemicals development, and we're really excited to make sure that uh, the end, you know, our members in the industry knows that we are looking toward the future and innovating in a, a wide range of in areas uh, beyond fuel. Because when we think of growth energy, we think of fuel. But you're right, you've, you've been representing so many other products. Are you also representing our, our corn and soybean growers? Absolutely. I mean, look, people don't understand all the time that there is so much value to be taken just from the kernel of corn itself. There's the starch, there's the alcohols, there's the protein, there's the cellulosic, um, the, you know, the, the, the stover from the, from the corn stock. All of those provide value. And we want to make sure that that value is recognized, both a regulatory matter and in the marketplace. And that's why we're sort of expanding our messaging to make sure uh, that all these different sort of uh, growth areas, to use a better, to lack for a better word, um, are, are going to be represented in the future as well. Ahead of our conversation, we heard from economists that in order to see corn bean prices, for example, rise, demand is the factor there. We need to increase demand. Have you seen an increased need for some of these other plant-based products aside from fuel that may bring some positive news in 2024? What I'll say is that consumers are ever more sensitive about what goes into their products. And the more that our industry can, can respond to that sentiment and, and provide you know, these types of plant-based products that you know, have a better profile um, in terms of reducing greenhouse gases, reducing chemical exposures, reducing emissions, then we're there for that. So definitely this is an area that is responsive to consumer sentiment that's been in place for a while. When we think of growth energy advocating for us at Washington, D.C., we think of the EPA because of renewable fuel standard and and E15 uh, blending in the summer. But there's another agency that you've also got your hands full with, the Treasury. This is all in regard to some nuances in agriculture, such as the carbon market. Give us an idea of, of what's going on. What brings you to the Treasury? Absolutely. So we are one year in to the Inflation Reduction Act, which was a climate package passed uh, last year that has a number of very significant tax incentives for biofuels production and carbon capture and sequestration. So the devil is always in the details in in these types of legislation where you have incentives. And uh, unlike in the past, Treasury has now been charged with implementing these very environmentally significant and climate significant pieces of legislation. It's new for them. And it's also new for our industry. So we've been doing a ton of work to engage with um, Treasury and, frankly, with all the other agencies that are involved in this, USDA, Department of Energy, uh, EPA, uh, to make sure they all understand the importance of accurately measuring the carbon benefits of biofuels and all the products that are going to be covered by these incentive programs. The key for us in this is ensuring that the, how you model climate, um, carbon emissions on a life cycle basis from the from the farm to the consumer you know to the consumer is accurate and that means using what we're calling the what is called the greet model from the department of energy 
Treasury has the opportunity to implement that model in a way that sort of fully realizes the value that our industry brings. And we have been pushing ever since the legislation was passed and before to to get their attention on that. So do you feel like the climate uh, benefits of renewable fuel, renewable uh, plant-based products is being accurately represented? Do you feel like you're making progress on that? It's a work in progress. It's and it's in the air. We are awaiting Treasury to put out guidance, uh, hopefully by the end of this year, but maybe it will slip into next year, that definitively establishes the GREEP model as the foundation for assessing the climate uh, profile of these products for the purposes of getting the tax incentive and the tax credit. Um, hopefully, they will uh, have heard what we had to say and what DOE itself has to say, which is the expert agency in this area, um, and provide that opportunity for us. Because right now, the default is to rely on an outdated, inaccurate model that's based on a consensus view of a bunch of you know, different foreign countries and considerations that doesn't reflect the unique characteristics of domestic production. And this has a direct benefit to the American farmer. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, the credits, the tax incentives under the IRA are scaled. You have to meet a certain threshold to get a base credit, but of course you want to maximize that credit. And the higher your your CI score, the better your CI score, your carbon intensity score, the more money you're going to get per, per, per unit of production. So the better your score, the more you're going to generate demand, and that, that you know, redounds all the way down to the, the feedstock producer, which is here, corn producers. I want to talk about the renewable fuel standard because this has been an ongoing issue, holding the EPA accountable for the rules that and the goals they put in place to make sure that renewable energy is being included in our fuel mix. So tell me what's happening there. So, you know, the RFS is a perennial issue for us. It's a perennial area of opportunity and a perennial area for challenge. And where we are now is, again, an inflection point where we have moved from statutory tables where Congress has established set numbers of uh, production in volumes for um, obligated producers to blend into what are called statutory factors, which gives EPA more discretion, more authority to assess in a more holistic way what the volumes ought to be. This is an opportunity for us because one of those factors is climate environment. We have a strong climate and environment uh, story to tell, and we want to make sure that it continues to get recognized. EPA has done a decent job of doing that in the most recent uh, RVOs. However, there always has been pushback from the oil industry and others who want to sort of degrade that um, commitment to increase volumes through SREs um, and through lowering the volumes because of uh, claimed environmental effects that we don't think are accurate. So what we're doing this year and next year is really developing that stronger environmental story to show that the RFS uh, deserves the enhanced volumes that EPA has been giving it, and it should continue into the future. And also pushing back against EPA itself, frankly, facilitating um, lost volumes through small refinery exemptions. They have, on the one hand, really tightened the standards for giving small refinery exemptions in recent years. But on the other hand, they have allowed those uh, refiners to not have to, uh, to comply with bl- actual blending, even though they're obligated. So you can't have it both ways, EPA. We want you to be consistent and to ensure that the full volumes um, that Congress had intended by using these statutory factors is implemented going forward. Now, Joe, you mentioned pushback for renewable liquid fuel is oftentimes from uh, big oil. There's also pushback from the other far side of this equation where they don't want liquid fuels, period. Right. Folks that are really pushing to, for sole reliance on wind and solar, for example. Yep. Is that another <laughs> corner that you didn't realize that you had to be dealing with? Absolutely. So, you know, there is a, 
there is a large push for obviously for electrification of vehicles, and that is a trend that was going to continue. The reality, however, is that liquid fuels are going to be part of our future for the next 30, 40 years. And we have to be able to prepare for that reality just as we're preparing for electrification. So what growth has been doing, in particular on the tailpipe emissions rule and on the, the CAFE standard that EPA put out uh, just this past year in, pr- in proposal, is to re- force them to recognize the central and integral role that biofuels will continue to play in meeting our nation's climate uh, goals. They haven't done that. They have neglected biofuels in both of those rulemakings, and we said that's our, that, that does not follow what your obligations are ought, ought to be. You've got to recognize that as much as we want to electrify, there is a path and a place for renewable fuels, for liquid fuels, to contribute to the decarbonization of our transportation sector. And if you, if you neglect that, you actually make it harder to meet our goals. So, you know... I think that pushback to that is one way of pushing back on the agency. And then just in general, every environmental, every sort of energy effort has environmental impacts. It's not as if wind and solar and electric are completely free of those. And we need to have an even playing field to measure that on a full life cycle basis. And what EPA does not do in those rulemakings is include what are called upstream emissions from production of those vehicles, which, again, puts a thumb on the scale in favor of certain technologies at the expense of biofuels. And we're pushing back and saying if you really want accuracy about the carbon impacts of whatever you do, you got to go all the way up to the full life cycle. Joe, the last point I want to make with you again, following the renewable fuel conversation specifically with ethanol, E15, the last three years I believe we've gotten a waiver for the summer for E15 to, to be allowed to be sold during that time period. Once again, you're at the table with EPA saying, can we make this permanent? Absolutely. So this is a vexing area for us. And as we head into 2024, without a permanent national fix, we're trying to think of the best ways to do that. So obviously, the the, 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 the best way to do this is through legislation. There's two pieces of legislation that would uh, create a small fix in the statute to ensure that E15 is given this waiver year round. As you know, we're heading into an election year. There's no guarantee that anything's going to get passed, even in a off, you know, in a good year. Um, so we have to think about other ways to ensure that this continuity of year-round E15, as you noted, since 2019, uh, continues into 2024. Because if it doesn't, if there's that gap that puts doubt into minds of retailers and other people who are trying to get these things into gas stations across the country. So you have states that have opted out. Unfortunately, again, EPA is 15 months delayed in responding to those state opt-outs. Uh, Iowa and Nebraska have already filed suit to force the EPA to get them to respond. But there's also is the emergency waiver. So as you know, the war in Ukraine in the past um, two years has created volatility in the market and put some price pressures on consumers, which has laid the foundation for giving the waiver in uh, previous years. Now, I don't know what the future looks like, but if those conditions continue that, that supported a waiver in 2022 and 2023, they should also be in place for 2024. But again, these are patch, patchwork, piecemeal opportunities. What we really need is a permanent national fix. I want to give you the final word then, just general outlook for 2024 when it comes to renewable fuel, uh, specifically news for Wisconsin corn and, and soybean growers. I mean, we are bullish about next year. If you look at the RFS, this is the EPA has finalized the highest volumes and the highest percentage standards in the history of the RFS. 
What we're also bullish on is the future of the sustainable aviation fuel market. That represents uh, potentially a large increase in the use of corn feedstock to satisfy those demands. But again, you got to get the incentives right, you got to get the market conditions right, uh, and you got to make sure that we are well placed in, fu- in our fundamentals to be able to act in this in uh, 2024 and in the years beyond. A lot of pieces that Growth Energy has their eye on in the biofuel supply chain, from infrastructure and policy to commercialization and carbon scoring. Joe Kakish, along with us, General Counsel for Growth Energy, outlining the organization's goals in the new year. Again, Growth Energy is an advocacy organization focused on expanding America's bioeconomy. For the Midwest Farm Report, I'm Stephanie Hoff.